Hello. You are listening to the On Circus podcast. This podcast explores all things revolving around and in contemporary circus. My name is Alice, and in this episode, we will be talking to Nadine Johnson, a creative professional with focus on human-centered design through color and material, innovation and sustainable technology. During the next hour, we will explore vulnerability in the digital era, age, gender expectations, and the effect our work has on our outlook of life. So you're a keynote speaker at the upcoming New Horizons Leadership Summit in December. I'm a keynote speaker. Oh my gosh, that sounds so important. (laughs) (laughs) The summit is about the future of circus and the future of performing arts and what that might look like. And so I wanted to get your opinion on what would you like it to look like? That's an interesting question and also very difficult for me because even though my career has been in what's now called futurism and what used to be called trend forecasting, it's hard for me to put an exact picture on the future. I think in broader terms, what I can see in the future is more autonomy and more responsibility for performers and not just following whatever gets ticket sales, but what is not only a true expression of one's art, but also a step forward and maybe thinking about at the turn of the 20th century, people like Martha Graham or Ruth St. Dennis and dance who really move things a step forward versus relying on past traditions without ignoring the past, but also giving homage to things that came before. So in my roundabout way, I'm saying, looking back to the past with a realistic eye and with respect, but also moving forward in a way that brings us to a better place that isn't just about money or adulation, but really about a creative expression to help our humanity move forward. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about what purpose art has in terms of, especially performance art, because um, I feel like the performative aspect of it can make things quite complicated and quite tricky. And one of my dear teachers uh, and a close friend now, um, a choreographer, Jorge Tresis, he, when I first met him, said that artists are the fools of the world. Um, And because of that, we have Uh, all the freedom to do what we want but also all the responsibility because of that freedom yeah and I feel like that responsibility is something that we need to speak about more because there's so much work that is as you said playing into what works and what what is comfortable for audiences what is comfortable for performers what doesn't require that much effort in thinking about how this is seen or how what this represents um yeah and that feels like something 
that needs attention. And that's a huge challenge. It, we have to get out of our comfort zone as artists. We have to push the audience out of their comfort zone. And sometimes there's a backlash against that. Um, to do it in a way that doesn't swing the pendulum all the way to another extreme is a talent that I'm not sure many of us are ready for. It's um, something I've been thinking a lot about is how each generation progresses after the previous one. And there seems to be a lostness at the end of the 20th century with so much change and upheaval. Some generations, I think, have sort of forgotten how to teach younger generations to move up and move forward. And I see that in the arts. I see that in our constant state of retro everything and <laughs> what we do. Um, I'm looking forward to the moment when millennials and Generation Z, for example, show us what their generation represents more than just looking back at the 90s or the 80s or the 70s as kitsch. I think it'll be interesting when or if it does happen. And maybe it'll take a whole nother generation of people who haven't been born yet to look back on that and say, that was fine, but we need to move forward. Do you think that part of the reason for that is um, the development of technology? Because I, I feel like we don't have that many people who are elders anymore because they can't give you life experience for things that they haven't experienced. And the world's mm -hmm. moving super fast at the moment. I can see that in some cases, but technology, uh, we've had many eras when technology progressed super fast. And thinking back to the turn of the 19th century, um, these new things like photography and faster trains and people were able to travel so much faster. You could get across the USA in days instead of months. That was a big deal. <laughs> And today it's just hours. Uh, so things progress, but I think how we use the technology is determined by the society. And beyond the technology, that lostness, maybe because of political or economic upheaval, seems to be ever present. And I think it's really affecting how we move into the future in our. Uh, I'm going to use the word humanity again, but in our collective conscience, I think the lack of respect for elder wisdom may be a byproduct of the information age. You can just look something up in a search engine. Why do you need to ask grandma or dad or mom or anyone? Um, and that's unfortunate because as we've seen in some natural disasters, as we've seen in just life, there are things that are passed on, become traditions for a reason. One thing I think about is the tsunami that hit uh, over a decade ago that wiped out about a quarter million people on Christmas Day. In Thailand, there were some people who survived who talked about a song that they knew from their grandmother and it talked about when the water disappears, you go to the mountain as quickly as you can. And that was from maybe centuries before when a tsunami hit. 
because in order for a huge wave to come in, the water really has to go far out, extraordinarily far out. And it is something that you pay attention to. And you may have just enough time to get to safety. But if you're not paying attention mm. to those old songs that grandma sings, mm. that's not going to come to mind. This um, lack of contact with the older generation. Um, I've spoken to a friend of mine as well about this. It's, it's something that we, we've been discussing um, in terms of where, where I am where the structure used to be you live in one space with the whole family you're you're in the same environment as your elders so you get to have this interaction with them on a day-to-day -day basis uh, whether you like it or not you're going to soak up some wisdom you know <laughs> um, and where we are right now is everybody wants their own space everybody wants to be independent self-sufficient I want my time to be what I decided to be. I want my space to be what I decided to be, but that does cause a separation. Yeah, and that separation, I think, is, is not good in many ways. Like, elderly wisdom is one thing, but also we lack community. We mm -hmm. lack people around us who can really support us. Like, we're, I guess, maybe like not we're used to as people but like I at least have this feeling of that's how it should be <laughs> I think that's a I think that's an ideal place because independence in my opinion and autonomy are two different things mm. to be autonomous to be self-sufficient doesn't just mean that the individual makes the thing or does the thing it means um, knowing, for lack of a better phrase, which cog you are in the wheel, uh, to know your function and how it helps the greater engine, whether it's a small community or a larger society. And I think that's something that we're missing. Um, and there's something going on in our society, definitely late 20th, early 21st century, it's sort of the me, me, me era. And I had a dream last night. It was so interesting. And I just remember the tail end of it. And I was saying to someone, it would be really sad if I spent my entire life looking at myself and my phone, which is sort of the selfie era. Mm. And when I woke up and I thought about it, I thought, yeah, that that's really true. When you think about the TikTok videos, what someone is doing is not looking at me, the viewer, they're looking at themselves on the phone and just stepping out and looking at that almost like an anthropologist seems very sad. Mm. Um, there's no real interaction with another human. There's the presence of an interaction and like a performance in daily life. And I think performance is needed from time to time in our interactions because that's how we are as humans. Um, we can't show all sides of ourselves all the time. But I also think, to your point, that that community and that um, consistent interaction with others, especially of different generations, um, different backgrounds, different ideas, is super important for developing tolerance, um, for developing curiosity, 
and without that, how can we move forward? Also, uh, being able to be vulnerable with people, because what, I mean, I hate phone calls. I really don't like speaking to people on the phone because I need to be vulnerable in that situation. It's, it feels like I can't, I'm not fully there, but I'm also, I don't have fully a shield, which for example, like text messaging gives me. Um, but the more we take ourselves away from actual physical conversations and interactions, the more that shield appears and which is kind of the issue of these times, which is being able to present yourself how you wish you were instead of how you actually are. Exactly. And that comes across as well in performance art, I think. There's, if social media shows these beautiful images and the perfect life, what do you expect to see on stage? There was a moment, even in performance art, when vulnerability was in style. <laughs> um, I remember listening to a discussion about, and the exact title was, why are so many influencers pre uh, pretending to be mentally ill? Mm. And it just had never occurred to me that that was a thing. So I listened in and people are self-diagnosing as being on the spectrum or having uh, various different illnesses when it's just not true and because that was something that attracted more viewers it was almost a fake vulnerability that was really interesting to watch and i thought we have so many opportunities to be vulnerable mm. to pretend to be vulnerable is next level is um i think again a byproduct of where we are as a society it almost feels like the only explanation is an illness or being on the spectrum of something and that it's you can't accept it as okay i'm human therefore i'm flawed and that is just how it is yeah and i think that's one of the things that we all have in common we're all flawed because we're all human and we're all as individual as fingerprints. Everyone is different than everyone else. And that's the great thing about our world. Yeah. And that's where the problem with performing perfection comes in. Mm -hmm. It's strange because the era where people are most seen and theoretically most connected to the rest of the world um we are actually able to hide ourselves the best because you're yeah. able to be a curator of how people see your life and i think curation is a very valuable skill and i would even probably call it an art form when used correctly when used i think in a healthy way um because uh, it's not about showing what's perfect, it's about showing what's valuable. That's a really wonderful phrasing, I like that. But it gets back to what do we value, not only as individuals, but as uh, societies. Yeah, I mean, I feel my uh, in my brain a lot of times this fight between 
what I actually care about as a human and then what I feel the society cares about and trying Mm. to go okay no that's actually not important I don't need to focus on that I don't need to care about that but it's still there uh, in the back of my mind I wonder how often because I think we all have that conversation I wonder how often that interferes with the process of creation and moving forward feeling somehow the big they the general society the audience won't accept it or won't find it valuable probably more often than we'd like to believe (laughs) yeah yeah and it's really hard to be vulnerable on stage because you have to be vulnerable in rehearsals before you can be vulnerable on stage. Oh. My experience anyway has been that it's harder. It's harder because I need to open up to the people who I'm working with. Mm. Because opening up to an audience that I don't know, that I don't have any interaction with, doesn't phase me because they're not part of my life. But as soon as I open up to somebody who is part of uh, a process or my life on a broader sense that's when it becomes um, it has risk involved I wonder if that's what we're all trying to avoid the risk and fear of I don't know rejection from those that we care about and admire probably also there's a fear that the rejection will be exactly what you fear right so your fears are your own and they're not representative of what people think about you but when people reject you for what you fear that's when it hurts the most that's when it's the scariest absolutely which i don't think also happens a lot i think it's it's mostly in our heads it's mostly an imagined situation I think you're absolutely right. Um, I think as humans, we have a knack for creating realities in our head. That's a good way of putting it as well. For better or for worse, we're creative. (laughs) Yeah. And it kind of brings me to this idea of representation as well in performance art. And representation on a broad spectrum of things of uh yeah bodily diversity race diversity but also tenderness also emotions that we might feel are cliche um or unacceptable in some way there was a a beautiful podcast as well um the why circus podcast and one of the episodes spoke about tenderness between men on stage um, Mm. and why it's not shown and why it's so rare to see and I feel like it's again this vulnerability that needs to happen there's something about our societies that for some reason makes that automatically sexual if there are two men who are affectionate towards one another, like brothers or friends, it's becomes something else in the audience mind, which 
I find disappointing. Mm. And I wonder if that's part of the mask that the audience wears. Because I know from my experience, there are men who love their brothers and have friends who they've grown up with over years and decades or maybe hours who they bond with in a really special way. And that's something that I think should be seen, not only for other men, but for women also. It's a world that we don't often get to see. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's just very important for, again, the progress of humanity to stop the segregation and understand the commonalities a little more. We can see those relationships um, with women uh, so many bonding and girlfriend movies and situations but I think to your point it's really important to have that tenderness um, yeah. to have the affection to have um, examples of people cherishing one another and not as a surprise you know oh my goodness these two opposite people are coming together but as these two humans are having a very human experience I, I've experienced that. That's right. We're all human. Yeah, it's interesting. I think you're right about seeing tenderness between two men as sexual as a default. And I think, my theory anyway, is that it's it just needs exposure therapy. It needs to be seen again and again and again in order to normalize it, in order to then be okay, this isn't automatically sexual, I can see it as just a thing. Mm -hmm. I think the same thing is still present in male and female relationships. I feel like the only place where it's not automatic is uh, female and female relationships. I think you're right. I can't think of a duo act with a man and a woman where the audience doesn't say, oh, they're such a cute couple. And especially if I know the performers and I know they're not a couple for whatever reason, it's an odd response to me. But then I realize that's the default. I wonder if it has something to do with um, physicality as well. And as, as a physical performer, I, I don't, Touch for me isn't sexual. Touch for me has is is human, but I feel like in society that's not how it's seen, and I also don't think that that's a very good thing. I feel like it should be seen as human, and that should have this freedom of I can touch people with their permission, with their uh, kind of acknowledgement of it, without it being seen as anything more than than just touch than an interaction. Doesn't it depend on the society, though? Just mm. thinking about my travels in some parts of the world, you can see two men arm in arm walking down the street, and they're just mm. really good friends. Yeah, I think that's very right. Yeah, coming from Eastern Europe, it's not very physically affectionate openly. <laughs> Same in the USA. Um, yes, we we don't have enough space in a very large country. <laughs> Yeah. I think that's one thing I do enjoy about um, going to places um, like throughout Latin America and the Caribbean, Southern Europe. It's um, people are just very open and very touchy. And it takes a while for me to warm up to it as a Californian. But 
after a while it feels very comfortable it feels very right and almost joyful some of my favorite photos um, one is of two boys in cuba they're about seven years old and they've been best friends since birth and they're just wrapping their arms around one another while walking through a field and i think that's beautiful yeah i think those are the moments we lack there's tenderness there's vulnerability there's friendship and non-sexualization for lack of a better word (laughs) i wonder if this hypersexualization as well as the infantilism that we experience in societies is um just an expression of our insecurities we always want to feel good even if it's just for five minutes we want to recapture our childhood even if it's in ridiculous ways yeah, I'd never thought of it that way, of it being a reflection of our insecurities. Probably. <laughs> Probably in a very deep-seated way. I feel like the sexualization of women specifically also comes from this industry of the yeah beauty industry. And, and that's uh, where a lot of insecurities stem from and a lot of need for approval stems from and need for being wanted, being desired, um, rather than forming actual vulnerable, deep relationships with people. Definitely makes me think about the late 19th century, just the birth of public relations and marketing and advertising. Um, people weren't ashamed of their halitosis before they were told to be ashamed of their halitosis. Um, uh, deodorant and all of these things that we use to make ourselves more presentable and better in some ways to other humans. It's so new and imposed on us and for the sake of capitalism. Mm. And if we circle back a little bit, there's the obsession of youth as well, which is separating us even more from the older population. Yeah. Where we're losing that connection with past generations because i don't know i'm i'm still young i still only hang out with young people (laughs) Uh, yeah i definitely see that so often Uh, for me as someone who is older older um i don't really know how to define myself anymore because people my own age seem to be less physical um, less interested in new things and I, I don't understand that lack of curiosity and I wonder if it's just an exhaustion with the world it's there's so much um, always coming at us after a few decades you just want to shut the door and not deal with anything or anyone or if it's uh, that pendulum swinging in an opposite direction instead of constantly going for youth people tend to lean into their elderliness and embrace all the stereotypes of what that means on a humorous note my partner this morning said um he he talks when he wakes up because his brain works at once but he might not be awake yet he told me that he <laughs> he understands why old people are grumpy that it's because they're just tired they're not actually <laughs> grumpy they just don't have the energy to be excited 
I, I like that. I, I'm going to put that in my deck of cards for sure. But I think, or what, what I resonate with in, in that is, is that it is an exhaustion. And it's an exhaustion because we don't live in a very healthy society where you have time to regenerate in a lot of ways. Yeah. So by the time that you are allowed to show exhaustion, then you're like, okay, fuck it. I'm just going to be tired. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I am looking forward to the day um, when I can just be that cranky old lady and, you know, get off my lawn, you crazy kids. Um, I don't know when I'm going to get there. <laughs> This makes me think about circus in particular, um, definitely embraces that uh, infantilism because uh, there are different strengths uh, for people who are younger versus older uh, physicalities. And, but why has it taken so long? And I don't think we're there yet. Why doesn't circus embrace the changes in a person's body? as they grow old. When I first started uh, my life as an aerialist, I was super curious, what does an aging aerialist look like? Mm. And the question was ignored. And I wanted to meet someone who had been an aerialist for 20, 30, 40 years and look at their body and see you know, what does it look like? And for me, it was the same curiosity as seeing pictures of Ansel Adams' hands as a photographer putting his hands into the chemicals again and again over decades. His hands started to look like gnarled tree roots. Mm. And that's what an aging photographer looked like in my mind, someone who's always there looking at Sebastião Salgado's eyes who's always looking through the lens and seeing things in a different way. And I looked for that in circus and in my limited world, I couldn't find it, but I'm still searching. But circus has this really strong relationship with um, the wow factor. If you can amaze people, then you're accepted in the circus community. And yeah maybe the infantilism is one from a physical standpoint but two also from um what i call uh the maximalism of youth mm. because there's a point where you stop wanting to impress people there's a point where you stop caring that you can do the biggest trick or that you can jump the highest and if you don't care about that anymore what does that say for the circus industry very, very good point. So this infantilism in mind as well as in body. Oh, that does make so much sense. Whether it's a play or even choreography that's developed by someone who's older, and I'll say over 40, has a different feeling, almost... Um, I hate to use the word sophistication, but there are more subtleties, more nuances in it that you don't have for younger audiences. It's like a being settled in your own craft. I remember seeing a dancer um, well in her 50s performing and 
something which I think dance is more accepting of uh, because we don't need the art form isn't based on tricks it's not based on uh, amazement um, which has its pluses and minuses but it allows for people to hone in on their craft in a way that doesn't require them to stay the same mm. um, and I really love seeing older older bodies on stage I love seeing people who I can tell how much experience they have just by how they move and how they approach things I find yeah. that super interesting it's, it's so inspirational and aspirational can circus represent older people I think it's possible but then the art form would have to evolve beyond the tricks and when storytelling comes into circus sometimes it becomes performative so can we get to that stage where we're telling really good stories without trying to make sure we check all the boxes because we can't we can only tell a tiny story in this greater world where do you think circus needs to evolve into as an art form maybe not as a community or as a as a as an industry but but specifically as an art form from my experience with meeting you and the others and circus thinkers i think we need to figure out what circus is i don't know if it's been ever defined you ask 10 people you make it eight different definitions so once we figure out what that is there's a chance to then decide where it should go or if it should fractionalize or uh, how to move forward. But right now it's so decentralized and right now it's already fractionalized. Um, it's hard to really say where it can go because I don't think there is an it. Mm. I will run run you by a definition that me, Jason, and a friend of ours, Josh Fraser, came up with for circus, because we had this discussion. Circus is an inclusive space where you come to do or witness non-intuitive skills. And by non-intuitive, we mean things that are not present in human history and cultures. So dance, music, um, all of these things, storytelling is something that is, if you look in any culture, they have their own form of it, mm -hmm. which is what I would call an intuitive skill. So circus is a non-intuitive skill. Um, and the definition of circus was the definition of a space. So circus is the equivalent of a theater uh, and not an art form in itself, but it's, yeah, it's a, it's a space of inclusivity. I like that definition, but I'm still curious about how inclusivity is defined, given the lack of inclusivity among the genders, age, races in circus. Um, certain apparatus are expected to be feminine, others are expected to be masculine. Um, and if we cross that, 
then there has to be a certain story told about the performer, the male on the feminine apparatus, the woman doing the masculine uh, performance. What I often see is that people make an effort um, later in life. You'll see people like uh, Jean-Paul Zaccarini talking about the aging circus body, and that's because he's over 50. But do we hear from the 30-year-old who's realizing that their body is different than when they started, maybe at 15 or when they were 20? And that moment of aging, which I think is equally important. Maybe it's a time when you're still trying to deny it. <laughs> Very true. I think it's... I agree with it, but also maybe not 100%, but I think that we can only really speak about our own experiences. So a 20-year-old can't speak about the aging body because what aging body have you experienced? I would say anyone who started their circus training at six, seven, or eight, 20 is different than 10. Mm. Mentally, physically, how do they feel? What do they hope for? I just realized that um, in my brain, aging meant growing old. Like old, old? Yeah, like old, <laughs> like, like not, not the change over the course of years that you're living. But okay, there's a certain point where you're you're growing up, and then there's a certain point where you're growing old. Ah, but that's wrong. <laughs> Catching myself in in the thought process of yeah, the aging body, the body's always aging. <laughs> I love finding spaces where my brain hasn't realized how it thinks. But I think just as there's often a segregation between people, you know, over 40, over 50, and people in their 20s and 30s, mm. there's also that segregation between the youth youth being, you know, in their single digits or teens, and people in their 20s and 30s. It's something that I see really often, usually once people become parents, they go back into that space where there are children. But uh, again, our society loves to separate and segment. So I find that it's really rare that someone who is a young adult, because just entering their independence as a person, uh, will look back and reach a hand back to those who are younger or those who are just starting, um, which is something I do find curious. And I know from my experiences early on in our training space, um, the circus school I go to does a lot of youth circus work and really training up people to be that next generation of performers, which I think is fantastic. So sometimes the school is full, so full of kids from age seven, six, seven, up to 16, 17. It's their time when they take it over. And as the adults are waiting, there's an impatience among people in their 20s and 30s. Um, they can't wait for those kids to be out of their way. 
And I always found that interesting because I thought, well, why, why is that? And is it that same impatience maybe that someone older has for someone in the mid, I call it midlife, 20s and 30s. I guess it depends on how long you live. If uh, you live into your 60s, 30 is midlife. It's really interesting how we, instead of, to your earlier point, um, have that intergenerational communication and cherishing one another for where we are, there's always an us versus them in these categories and these groups. Yeah, there's a lot of separation. It also feels like from what you're describing, which I can relate to, this impatience towards other people. Um, I feel like it's a lack of maybe remembering or a lack of, of acknowledging that there are people who are in a different mindset than you, younger or mm. older, but but yeah that you're you're not your way of thinking is not the only way of thinking your your age of thinking is not the only age of thinking so what the younger people need is not what you need but they still need it i love that phrase age of thinking that's so wonderful we need more i feel we need more conversations and more discussions amongst um different people age differences background differences belief differences all of these things just they need to be out in the open and spoken about so that they're normalized so that their people understand the full spectrum of life that it's not it's not your individual experience and that's when we can really be inclusive when we realize how much there is available and how how different people are i was thinking at first i thought we need to get back to a civility in our conversation and then i caught myself and i thought have we really ever been civil in our communication with other people who are different in some way maybe that's what we need in our evolution Mm. Yeah, it might be a good, um, <laughs> good century for that. <laughs> <laughs> with with the internet, with technology, we're we're seeing more and more of all the different cultures that are present. Yeah. So just the awareness of them, I think, is already a huge step. Just the fact that we're talking is proof of that. You know, you yeah. being in America, me being in Eastern Europe, um, this vastly different experience, vastly different cultures, and we're able to have a conversation with each other is, I think, proof that this is the time to start those conversations. They're probably still going to be hostile in the beginning. <laughs> Very often. Some of the uh, frustration and anger comes through with the 
Um, lack of acknowledgement of history, as it really is, uh, versus the fiction. And that sometimes puts people on the defense. And that's where everything stops. There's no further conversation. And I even see that in circus. And we have those unfortunate discussions, animals versus no animals. Those conversations can never move forward. <laughs> um, yeah, I am fascinated by animals in the circus and animals who perform and zoos and aquariums and things like that. It all, for my entire life, it's always felt wrong in some way. But at the same time, I appreciate that it's there. I I could never be so close to a lion or a tiger if it weren't for a zoo. And I get to see it for myself. But that lion's existence may not be as fulfilled or sad. Maybe its life is longer, but they're not able to live their best life. Yeah. Mm. The conversation needs to move in a way of, okay, this has happened. This is history. There's nothing we can do about history at the moment. But what can we do from this point onwards while taking history into account? To make a better history for those in the future. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, what, what would a zoo look like? What would an ethical zoo look like? We can't erase the fact that zoos exist. We can't probably erase the fact that people will want to keep them existing. But how can the idea of that change enough? Probably the same with circus. Exactly. How can circus keep existing in a better way than it's been so far without changing the identity of circus. I think that's the exciting part about the early 21st century is mm, the possibility of change. That's a nice it's a nice phrase. Possibility of change. Hopefully that can be the the way that people will look back at this time in history. Fingers crossed um, that we got it so right that they want to look back at this time as a positive thing. <laughs> yeah. We can do our best to make that happen. Hmm. I think that's a good space to end as well. I think you're right. This has been very lovely. Thank you for joining me. Oh, gosh, thank you for inviting me. This was such a wonderful experience, and I'm so grateful that you put it together, and I can't wait to meet you in person. Nadine will be one of the keynote speakers at the New Horizons Leadership Summit in Lund, Sweden. That will happen from the 1st to 3rd of December. Centered around the role of Circus as a leader on the frontier of cultural change and innovation, the summit seeks to bring together a regional and international community of thinkers and doers, shaping our collective future. This podcast is brought to you by Circus Sid, a networking platform for international research, development and innovation.